3CR wishes to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nations, on whose land we are gathered here today. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome back, Alice. Thanks. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Although the the studio does feel a little bit empty without Judith. Yeah, it does feel like someone's missing. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, there's a huge gap in the show. I know, but um, we are going to hear a little bit of an interview with her later. So she's gone, but not completely. She'll be here forever. Her voice is still with us. (laughs) Exactly. And how was uh, your break, Alice? It was great. So, yeah, the rents were down from the UK, and we went um, in a camper, did a bit of, yeah, exploring over the the Great Ocean Road. Yeah, it was really nice. And we got really good weather as well, so it was perfect. And I showed them around Melbourne a little bit, so they've had their little taste of Melbourne. They liked it. Got to play tour guide. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm not very good at it, but I tried. (laughs) Have they gone back to England now? They've gone to New Zealand, so they're going to do another little trip there and then head back. Cool. Yeah. How about you guys? How are your weekends? Very nice. Yeah, I spent the weekend at Queenscliff Music Festival, so it's very relaxed, so lots of live music, also with my parents, so, yeah. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, very uh, chilled out festival, not unusual. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't heard of that one before. I don't know if I'm just not on the festival scene, but... Yeah, it was bigger than I realised. I think they said around 40,000 people over the course of the weekend, Um, but it's all through the town, so it never feels too crowded. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) How about you, Paddy? I was working, unfortunately. Oh, no. For the whole time? Uh, Not not the whole time. I I got to go (laughs) home and start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. At least they let you go home for rest and then come back straight away yeah they squeeze every drop they they squeeze it all out of you but we've got a bit of a um quite a nice show today actually we've got at 8 15 paddy uh we have an interview with fleur kilpatrick who is the inaugural winner of the helen noonan prize which is a a prize for best play um uh and for women's storytelling as well great what play is she nominated for uh her, her play whale okay Interesting. And how about at 8 o'clock? So I've got Pilar Aguilera coming in, uh, phoning in, sorry, for an interview. Uh, so Pilar's a Melbourne-based Chilean activist and a 3CR broadcaster. Uh, she co-hosts our weekly Spanish language program, uh, Completada Bailable. And uh, over the weekend, Pilar was involved in the concert for Chile. Um, so that's an event that was held here in Melbourne, uh, held in solidarity with the protests happening in Chile. Uh, so I'm going to be asking Pilar how the concert went and having a chat about the latest news from Chile. Awesome. And I'll also cover Chile in our alternative news section, so we'll have a bit of background knowledge before we chat. Amazing. And at 7.45, we're going to be speaking to Fiona Toomey, who is hosting an event on Wednesday called Leading the Charge, which is, um, and then she's going to be speaking to heavyweights around the panel, and it's all about climate change, disability, and storytelling. Um, So she's going to chat to us at 7.45, a little bit about the event and uh, some of the problems and issues that might be spoken about then as well. Um, We are going to hear a little bit from 
Judith with Greg Denham, so we'll have that up soon. But we're also going to have a lot of music, I think, today. We're going to have a lot from some Aussie bands and some Melbourne bands. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a fun-filled Monday show. I Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Nice way to bring in the week. Absolutely. <laughs> So we've got some alternative news for you now. Um, I'm going to go first. Um, I've taken the opportunity to look at Chile this week, um, in particular at the report released by Amnesty International last Thursday, uh, which looked at the government's response to the ongoing mass protests. Uh, So as many of our listeners would know, Chile has been in a state of civil unrest since protests erupted in mid-October. So these came in direct response to an increase in public transport fares, Uh, but it's widely been seen as the straw that broke the camel's back after years of growing inequality and rising cost of living. Um, So despite experiencing massive economic growth and having the highest GDP per capita in Latin America, uh, Chile is one of the most unequal countries in the world. Um, So there's still many Chileans struggling to afford really essential basic goods and services. Uh, In particular is the cost of healthcare and education. Um, So people had had enough, and they've continued to protest. Um, On October 25, an estimated 1.2 million people took to the streets in what was the country's largest ever protest. Wow. Um, And, yeah, Amnesty International have just released a... Sorry, have just completed a research mission in the country, and it's a pretty scathing assessment of how the government has responded to these protests. 
Um, so the report says security forces under the command of the president are carrying out attacks that use unnecessary and excessive force and that the attention of this is clearly as a deterrent to protesters, not just as a last resort, as it should be. Mm. Um, so it makes it clear this isn't about one-off incidents or individual members of the force. It's part of a broader pattern. And the report actually describes it as the modus operandi of security forces. Um, it says, and I quote, instead of taking measures to curb the very grave human rights crisis, the authorities under the command of President Sebastian Pinera have pursued a policy of punishment for over a month. Um, so according to the National Human Rights Institute, some of the harm resulting from this includes five deaths at the hands of security forces. Um, but I want to point out that these are only the confirmed deaths by the reports. So at least 24 people have died during the course of the protests. Uh, 2,300 have been injured. Over 1,400 of those were sustained gunshot wounds and 220 were severe eye trauma. So that's people who have now lost sight in at least one eye as a result of oh pellet God. guns, which are rubber, but only partly rubber. So they can still do a lot of damage, as we're seeing in a few places in the world now. Um, so, so far, Amnesty International has documented 23 cases of human rights violations, uh, including use of lethal force, torture and ill treatment, serious injuries and potentially lethal weapons, and restriction on the work of human rights defenders. Um, so Amnesty International have made a number of recommendations, uh, including ending the current repression exercised by security forces, investigating those responsible for the human rights violations, including those in command, not those just doing their bidding, um, and meeting the legitimate demands of the population and reforming the police force. Um, wow. So, yeah. So were those, um, the death that you spoke about, is that direct from the police force? That's part of the Yeah, so yeah, my understanding is the five is um, direct ones they can prove um, were committed by the police force mm -hmm. um, in custody, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of people who have been injured in, in the course. Well. Yeah, I believe so. Um, but others who have um, experienced uh, beatings from the police and have later died, and I think, yeah, that's not included in the five. Mm -hmm. um, is, it is it central to Santiago, or is it across Chile? Uh, both, I think. So, yeah, it is uh, uh, localised in Santiago, but, um, yeah, these cases are from all over Chile, so um, it's happening all mm -hmm. over the country. It's definitely something that um, we're all so much more aware of now as well, especially since I've become more active in my own activism with the police and understanding the really the the role that they they have in yeah. safety and then and not the power at all. Yeah, yeah the power um, as we've seen in Hong Kong also yeah I was going to say you see similar dynamics around the world yeah it seems. Um. wow. Well, thank you for that. Honestly, yeah. that was yeah. <laughs> heavy way to start the yeah, Monday. Yeah, <laughs> heavy weight, but it's going to link in really nicely to the interview later in the show. Yeah, as well. yeah, it should do. And yeah, it was really nice actually on the weekend at Queenscliff Music Festival. I saw Nano Stern, who also played at the concert for Chile, which I missed, but I got him at the festival. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he was um, had some stories himself. Um, talking about how he's now on their watch list. He's, his sister got a call um, from someone high up in the government saying he's on their watch list uh, for a song he's written. Wow. Um, wow. So when you hear what the police have done, um, then someone can get in trouble like that for writing a song. It's Absolutely. very shocking. <laughs> wow. Well, following on from that, my, uh, my new segment is about the protests in Iraq. So let me just start with a quick clip from Al Jazeera. This was uh, broadcast on the 2nd of October. Mm -hmm. 
Iraqis marched to demand jobs and improve services in the largest demonstration yet against Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi. Their appeal is a repeat of previous protests. So are Iraq's leaders listening and why isn't the government able to deliver? So since then, more than 300 people have been killed by, by security forces in a month of violent unrest. Uh, last week, protests uh, began in Iran and the regime reacted by a complete shutdown of the internet. So the death toll there is unknown. Um, I, think, I think we're seeing a lot more of these protests across the world. And um, I think when we look at Iraq, we need to remember that Australia... Um, back in the U.S. invasion, um, played a large role in decentralising um, and in destabilising uh, the nation, and you know has really contributed to the unemployment and uh, infrastructure destruction that um, is really driving these these uh, uh, protests. Mm. Yeah, I think they've um, had a similar situation there as well with the non-lethal um, weapons. And I say that in air quotes because. Despite being non-lethal, I think they have actually caused deaths and certainly a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. I was reading about one young gentleman who had a, a tear gas canister lodged in his head. That was oh like god, wow, wow. And this is the alternative news segment. So obviously, did, have you seen this in mainstream media at all? Not really. I was trying to do um, a lot of searches. Al Jazeera. You can always find good information about the Middle East, and but um, you know, largely you read the the main um, newspapers in Australia, um, their websites, you, you can't find very much on it. Yeah, it's certainly not proportionate, I think. Mm. Um, I found the same with Chile, even though we're hearing a lot about it. Um, even with the major newspapers, there weren't articles for at least a few days, if not a week. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I find it comes in, in sort of floods, like it will be something that the mainstream media are covering for about a week and then you won't hear much about it and it's like just almost like a checklist, like, yeah, we did that, now we don't have to talk about that again, let's move on to something else. Yeah. And they don't see it, it's never seemed to be like followed up in, in a way. Yeah, it's it's a one-day anyway. protest when it's really things that are going on for months yeah. And, yeah. and in some cases years. I mean, the... Uh, Iraq, you know, the first Gulf War was 1991, and you're still seeing the effects carrying on, carrying on. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's always much deeper than it seems. Yeah. So we know a little bit about then what's not in the newspapers. <laughs> we do have them right here. Ooh, let's see what made Should the we cut. Have a look yeah, back what actually what about. Okay. <laughs> so I can start. I've got the age in front of me. Um, some China bashing. China bid to plant MP spy in Canberra. Um, you can always rely on some China bashing yeah, if you're out of old, Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you don't have anything else, just pull something out about China and everybody seems to believe it straight away. Um, and again, some more. So po pu push for top level policy group on China. I'm not familiar with this story, but there we go. And we've got more about Westpac. The Westpac chairman could quit early. Um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about Westpac at the moment. Yeah. The criminal and charges of yeah, money laundering. Yeah, the money laundering and the, the, uh, the paedophile ring in the Philippines. Oh. That it was so, funding. Yeah, like yeah. pretty pretty intense. I, still unclear. So basically they have, um, because of their lax regulations, people have been able to use Westpac to money launder. Is that... And the, I think 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not fully over it completely, but um, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the bonuses. They're, they're, they're basically the, the PR is that they're holding back bonuses at the moment um, while the investigation goes on for the executives, and um, they're gonna, they're, they're under investigation now. Um, but it, it, it all. I mean, I don't know why it's taken this long for it to come out. I mean, that's something that maybe we could cover in a show next week when, yeah. I, when we are a bit more up to date. But yeah. Absolutely mad. So the uh, front front page of the Herald Sun has uh, Kim Kardashian taking uh, center stage, as well as news about the cricket and secret deal undercuts private timber producers. Undercut probably because right. they're talking about wood. Love <laughs> <laughs> a good time. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And, and what about what have you got there, Ella? Yeah, I've got some really sad news from um, Logan in Queensland, um, where a couple of children have died in a hot car, which that was, yeah, is all too common. Um, and but I, I believe will, the um, mother's been charged. She has, and yeah, I'm really interested to see how it unfolds because obviously hot car deaths are unfortunately yeah. um, an occurrence that's happened before. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand. Um, again, it's more complicated than it seems, and I think they've done a lot more studies into it recently and found that there is no common factor um, across age, demographic, or parenting style. Um, it seems to just be this thing that happens in your brain when you're a parent and you have so much to think about mm. that something just slips through the gap. Mm. And um, It will be interesting to see what else comes from, yeah, from this news. Yeah, um, so far it seems to blame the mother. Yeah. Um, and perhaps... That's fair. Maybe there's more to the story. Yeah, I know that the the police still, um, or the the investigators are still trying to work out how long they were in the car for. They still don't know that. Okay. So that would be a massive indicator. Yeah. But in Queensland heat, I I imagine half an hour would be enough to do it. Yeah, it wouldn't take long in Queensland. Apparently the car can get up to 40 degrees hotter than the outside temperature, the greenhouse effect of the, the glass and the heat. Wow. Um, but yeah, she's been charged with murder. I didn't realise it could be that quick. That's yeah, that is. Um, I mean, I don't have an experienced heat like that before ever, so I'm that's crazy. Uh, missing out. Yeah. <laughs> so this is from the Australian, right? So the Australian goes for the car death toddlers had been left before. Ah. Uh, and we got a bit more about the Westpac. Yeah, and Westpac again. So Westpac's execs still in the money. It says. Mm. Um, so at this stage, they're still in line for those big fat bonuses. Yeah, we'll see. Like <laughs> so I think that's our first little taster of the news today. And we're going to head to a song now by Mojo Juju, Native Tongue. Oh, I was going to select this song myself, Alice. I saw her on the weekend <laughs> at Queenscliff. I think she was my oh, favorite really? performance of the weekend. So, so in sync, it was my first choice.
daddy was Wiradjuri. My father came here from the Philippines. It's where I live, it's where I want to be. Whoo! But you make me feel so ill at ease. I don't speak my father's native tongue. I was born under the southern sun. Mojo Juju with Native Tongue, absolute legend, um, and one of Ella's favourites as well, which is great to find out. And we're going to head to an interview that Judith, our lovely friend who is not in the studio with us today, did um, I think a couple of weeks ago now, but this is a part two. So part one was played last week, and now we're going to uh, finish it up. So... The interview is really going to touch on the links between mental health, trauma, negative childhood experiences and programmatic, uh, sorry, yeah, program, <laughs> I don't know why I'm <laughs> programmatic here, but yeah, problematic drug use. Um, and if the government was serious about these pro- pro- problematic drug use, um, they'd spend money and focus on these areas. So we're going to take a listen to that now. The social determinants of health, you know, particularly disadvantage and poverty, 
were drivers for um, chronic and dependent levels of drug use, and particularly you know, that sort of chronic, very much chaotic style of drug use. And I think mental health is a big issue in many people. And I think if you look at people's um, early childhood experiences... You mean, you mean negative experiences, I presume? Negative experiences, abuse, disadvantage, disconnection from family, trauma. Trauma is a big issue with many people who have... Uh, problematic drug use issues. So if the government's serious about doing something about drug use, it would start addressing those issues? Yeah, we should be putting our money, our resources into those types of you know, issues rather than at the other end, which is you know, increasing police resources, increasing penalties, increasing the number of people in jails. We have, a, I guess, a resource allocation which is at the wrong end of the continuum. We're putting it at the end where we see people ending up in jail with criminal convictions and it only reinforces and also increases the risks and harms for people. So we should be taking money out of the criminal justice system as they have done in, for example, Portugal. Portugal has done an amazing job over the last 20 years in reducing the number of people that enter the criminal justice system when they decriminalise drug use. So given what you said, who benefits from keeping cannabis illegal? Well, that's the question, actually. Certainly, um, within LEAP, we used to talk about, I think it's the four Ps. Certainly, police um, have a, an advantage in keeping uh, cannabis illegal because, you know, it enables them to demonstrate that they're still doing their job around drug offences. It boosts their figures, it boosts their, their arrest results. And, of course, in the end, they'll just turn around and say, look at the great work we're doing, you need to give us more resources you know, to pursue this even further. The courts, obviously, you know, people going through the court system, they benefit from this. The courts benefit how? Well, they have more people going through their system as well. So they have, a, I guess, an obligation to make sure that a person is treated fairly in the eyes of the law. But if you look at the whole criminal justice system, which includes police, courts and prisons, that whole system benefits from drugs being illegal. The media benefits. You only have to look at the, the feeding frenzy over the last few days around the incidents that were happening in and around North Richmond and the people working at North Richmond Community Health Centre, the way in which the media is pursuing the medically supervised injecting room. You, you look at the media feeding frenzy and the moral panic that they generate when it comes to um, drugs and drug use. So there's quite a few agencies and groups in society that benefit from drugs being illegal. Who makes the money? Well, at the moment, the money's being made by the um, people involved in the black market, including criminal gangs, um, outlaw motorcycle gangs who supply most of crystal meth, the ice in Australia. They use those funds to do other illegal activities and also do legal activities, so they almost become legitimate. In fact, they do become legitimate through their investment in uh, legal activities, including pizza parlours, chicken shops tattoo parlours, massage parlours, so they invest that money into all of those different businesses and then they become legitimate, just like families and, and other people involved in alcohol prohibition bootlegging during the 1920s invested in legitimate you know, businesses and became legitimate citizens. And they do need friends in Parliament. Of course they need friends in Parliament. The alcohol industry has an investment in, in politics. They make significant contributions to uh, political parties... And, of course, the uh, alcohol industry doesn't like the idea that cannabis could become legal because it may take away from their market. Research already in the, in the states where they've legalised cannabis has indicated that people are switching from alcohol to cannabis. So, and alcohol being a much more dangerous drug. 
far more risky. If you look at the impact of alcohol across society, it's far more risky and far more harmful than cannabis. So, you know, the alcohol industry has a um, big investment in ensuring that there are, are not other products such as cannabis which will take away from, from its bottom line. And so what would be the benefits of the ACT's move to allow cultivation and possession of small amounts of cannabis for personal use for anyone over 18 years of age? Well, first of all, it's going to uh, stop people giving a criminal record. It's going to stop people from being apprehended by police, searched by police, strip searched by police, uh, intimidated and coerced into confessing by police. It's going to stop a significant amount of, of uh, resources allocated towards policing, which is a big benefit. It's going to take away the stigma and discrimination. It's going to ensure that people don't have a criminal record, which can significantly impact on people's lives, whether it's travel, whether it's work, which is probably the most harmful aspect of cannabis use at the moment. The majority of people that use cannabis, and it's almost 12% used on a regular basis, most harmful aspect is being caught by the police. Having a criminal record has far greater impact on people than the risk of mental health issues, which for a small, very, very small number of people is a risk. But again, the majority don't have that risk. So why do we pour so many resources into policing a substance which, for the most part, many people benefit from and doesn't cause significant harm? We need to change the narrative and change the discussion around drugs and drug laws. Canberra laws certainly do reflect changes in, in community attitudes. It's unfortunate that other states haven't followed suit. I would hope, for example, in Victoria that in the next couple of years that we do have a, an open discussion about cannabis laws because I think it's time that we too in Victoria started to consider changes, particularly at least a minimum of decriminalising of cannabis use. The days of criminalising people for their cannabis use should be long over and I think it really doesn't reflect community views and community attitudes anymore. And that was um, Judith with Greg Denham on alcohol and drug use. And I believe we've got something else coming up straight away. Is yeah, that right, Pat? Yeah, so next we've actually got something uh, that started on Monday breakfast and it's moved to Saturday breakfast. Amazing. So regular listeners of Monday breakfast may remember Over the Wall, a oh. segment which began here on Mondays. Over the Wall has restarted as part of our Saturday morning program, Solidar Solidarity Breakfast. We thought we'd bring you the latest episode as a reminder to tune in to this in-depth look into people on living on the margins. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today we visit with Josh Cullinan, head of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, find out about a new class action that takes on Domino's Pizza, hoping to claw back lost wages. If you worked for Domino's Pizza between 2013 and 2018, you may be entitled to a whole bunch of unpaid wages and benefits which you didn't receive at the time. The Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, in partnership with law firm Phi Finney McDonald, is pursuing Domino's through the courts via a class action to recover lost wages. I spoke to Josh Cullinan, head of that union, a few weeks ago about the case. He began by outlining the legal principles involved. 
So one of the things that we've been investigating for a long time at Domino's was the way that they were employing and paying workers across their network. So Domino's has somewhere around 650 to 700 outlets in Australia. The vast majority, 90%, are run by franchisees. And there are very, very many franchisees. While there's a couple that might have seven or eight or ten stores, there are something like 450 employing entities for those 650 outlets. And those employing entities come and go on a very regular basis. Now, what we were able to identify after a large piece of work was that the company was applying the old SDA agreements that it had with head office for all of their franchisees. And we came to the conclusion that that's not the way the law works. When an employee transfers, say from head office to a new employer, it may be in certain circumstances that the agreement transfers with them. And that's usually a protection for workers because they've got a good agreement and the company can't just avoid that agreement by transferring the workforce to another employer. Unfortunately, at Domino's, what that meant was that they were transferring an inferior agreement, which actually cost workers a lot to that new employer in some circumstances. But for the vast majority of employees that were being employed by employers that weren't ever part of these SDA agreements, we were able to identify that they should have been paid the minimum award. That award since 2014 has had all of the basic conditions that we're used to, so laundry allowances, travel allowances when delivering a pizza, penalty rates on Saturday and on Sunday, penalty rates late at night. None of those conditions were being given to workers. And another large one was for delivery drivers, almost 20,000 of them across Australia, none of them were getting a casual loading. And so what we have been able to do is work with a law firm called Fifini McDonald to develop a class action for many of those workers to pursue the wages that they haven't been paid. And that's now been launched. So in June, class action was launched. It's led by one of our members. He no longer works at Domino, so he's an ex-member of ours, but Riley's a fantastic young man, um, young dad who lives in the Sunshine Coast. He's the lead applicant, and there's been a website established at dominosclassaction.com.au, and that website, workers who have worked for franchisees between June 2013 and January 2018 are able to register their interest and be kept up to date and eventually participate as claimants in that class action if they're eligible. The first case management conference for that was in August. The next case management conference for that is in October. And what we'll see is that that case will roll out over the next few months. There's a lot of lost wages involved. The case is directed at Domino's head office, multi-billion dollar international company who pays its CEO over $30 million a year. And rather than individual franchisees, because many of them have come and gone, uh, many of them are bare bones anyway, and the fact is that it was head office telling them what to pay workers. That case is uh, yet to be heard right through in the courts, but uh, certainly it was great to get that launched, and it's been great to get so many workers involved already. There's already been a couple of thousand people register on the website to be involved. As Domino's head office sought settlement at all at 
this point? No, it's in the initial stages at this stage. So it's in the skirmishes of case management conferences and directions hearings. And those first stages still require dominoes to put on a defence and things like that. So we're uh, still a little way off the head office seeing the light and recognising that these workers should be paid what they're owed and their responsibility to do that. At this stage, that hasn't even started. Many of you will remember the 7-Eleven wage theft scandal of 2015. I asked Josh to explain how that case differed from the Domino's case and how the franchisor-franchisee relationship would affect the class action. Well, the difference here was that what we have is the franchisor in Domino's head office directing franchisees how to pay workers. So there were documents that are available online to the workers which stipulated the wage rates that applied in Domino stores. With the 7-Eleven scenario, it was a little bit different. We see the behaviours in 7-Eleven at Domino's, so payback schemes and visa schemes and all sorts of other things that have been reported on in the media. Those sorts of things are happening both at 7-Eleven and at Domino's. But the difference is, is this is about the actual wage that was paid to workers at the outset and how it related to the award, and that's not where 7-Eleven really went. So 7-Eleven was different to Domino's. In terms of the Domino's case, I'm not aware of a similar action being launched in Australia. There's several class actions underway for other entitlements, notably the casual workers who were not paid annual leave and personal leave and redundancy pay, and companies trying to offset that with casual loading and the federal government assisting them with that. There's some of those class actions, but they, again, are different. This action is being initiated effectively under competition law on the grounds that the franchisor Domino's head office represented to franchisees what they had to pay workers, and then workers suffered from that. And that's where it's been directed to try and resolve. Right, eh? What's the timeline here for the class action at Domino's? I'm not an expert on that. I had hoped it would be fairly quick, but... Uh, with the directions hearing happening in late October and the next stage is probably in February, March of 2020, I expect it's some way off before being resolved. And by that I mean not just months, you know, many, many months. I'm not across how long these things take and I guess it does come down to whether Domino's is prepared to ensure that every worker that worked for it, delivering pizzas and making pizzas, is paid the wages they should have been paid. Domino's head office certainly profited. They profited from the franchise fees and everything else that was going on at those times, and they know what these workers were paid and what they should have been paid. So all of their technical arguments fall away when we look at what these workers that were the backbone of their company should have been paid. Well, we might wrap it up, but I'll just get you to perhaps let listeners know how best to contact you because they're going to be queuing up to join RAWFW and also how they go about signing up for the Domino's case. Yeah, sure. So workers that have worked at a Domino's franchisee from June 2013 to January 2018, it's not all of these workers will be part of the action, but if you did work, you're very, very likely to be part of that action. You can go online at dominosclassaction.com.au. There's a, a website there where you can search for those terms in Google or wherever your search engine is, and you'll be able to find that class action and register your interest to participate. Uh, workers can find out more about the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union on our website. It's a little bit of a clunky website, but we're looking to rejuvenate it and build a new one 
in the coming weeks. It's www.rafwu.org.au, and Rafwu is R-A-F-F-W-U, so it's the acronym for Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And you can check us out on Facebook. Again, it's facebook.com forward slash Rafwu. You can get in touch with us just by emailing contact at rafwu.org.au or calling 1300 398 if you do Google RAFWU or the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, you'll often find another organisation that's spending a lot of money on ads advertising our name but giving you a link to another website. So, yeah, just look for the rafwu.org.au or facebook.com forward slash RAFWU. In coming weeks, we'll continue our interview with Josh Cullinan covering Kmart, Coles and Canberra's proposed new industrial laws. We thank Mr Cullinan for his time and expertise. That was Over the Wall, a segment which began here on Mondays, offering some simple tools to back and defend yourself against a system that penalises people already disadvantaged by, by poverty and significant health conditions. Over the Wall now restarted in, in a new time slot as part of our Saturday morning program, Solidarity Breakfast. Tune in across the week for quality current affairs. And next we're going to play a song from Carla Geneve, 2001. You're listening to 3CR.
And that was Carla Geneve with 2001. Beautiful track there. Um, and now we're going to be speaking to Fiona Toomey. And she is hosting an event at the Wheeler Centre on Wednesday called Leading the Charge. And we know already climate change is hitting us all pretty hard, but it's hitting some of us harder than others. So for people living with a disability, it brings unique, um, a unique set of potential impacts and consequences. So we're lucky enough to have Fiona Toomey talking to us today. She's an inclusive storytelling specialist and award-winning screenwriter, director, producer and developer working across storytelling genres and platforms. So Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, no, thank you for um, having, having me. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> so I've, I've just given it a bit of a brief introduction, but can you tell us a bit more about um, the event you'll be hosting on Wednesday at the Wheeler Centre? Yes, yeah, so just to sort of take a step back, um, I am a writer and filmmaker, as you mentioned, but I'm also um, currently the artistic director of the Other Film Festival, which um, is a flagship program of Arts Access Victoria. And um, this year we've been partnering with the Wheeler Centre on a series, this will be our third panel event. Um, and I suppose... Yeah, just, I mean, why we sort of conceived the idea around this was, um, I mean, two things, definitely in terms of the whole climate change, climate crisis, uh, the conversations, but even the advocacy around it, we're often not seeing um, disability and more marginalised voices of our community um, centred in those conversations. And then also, I suppose, the connection to how I think that becomes relevant to our work and the advocacy work we're doing in the screen sector and in, um, around storytelling is just really looking at, um, as writers and artists and filmmakers, how can we amplify voices through the stories we tell and kind of open up, um, once again, try to change the centre through including, you know, a number of different intersections from the margins. I suppose. So that's where the, the impetus of where this um, idea for the event started. And, and, I mean, we've seen the bushfires displacing people all over Australia. So the conversation about accessibility and shelter really needs to be happening now more than ever. Um, so why is inclusive storytelling so important to recentering the climate change discussion? Um, well, I mean, there's... Uh, I mean, there's, you know, a few ways to look at to look at this, but I think, you know, um, there's definitely even, you know, different scientists, kind of climate scientists, let alone um, people with disability and as advocates um, ourselves, you know, actually are seeing that you can just, if you just have, you know, it's making that head and heart connection between a lot of a whole lot of facts, um, which. You know, I think there's that concept of, you know, you, you often can be just preaching to the converted, but how do you get through, how do you cut through to people? And, you know, we currently pretty much have a federal government which is in, you know, climate denial. Um, how can, you know, um, we try to change 
the the mainstream narrative and kind of make that more inclusive of um, all people, not just um, kind of the obvious things when it comes to um, not just, yeah, just around, I suppose, preparing for um, whatever our climate change just keeps kind of bringing towards us. Mm. And you're an inclusive storytelling specialist. So what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? And like how, how do you become a specialist in the storytelling? Well, it's kind of like, you know, I, uh, I, I mean, I am, a, I am a filmmaker and I'm, you know, a writer and I work as, um, I, I do work as a story developer. Mm-hmm. But also I have experience across, um, you know, not just in the screen sector, but back in 2012, um, I was employed by Arts Access Victorian Writers Victoria to start um, Writeability, which is a Writers with a Disability program that's still based out of the Wheeler Centre. And through that, I literally worked with, um, you know, hundreds, not exaggerating, writers with disability, but also um, organisations like the Wheeler Centre, but the Emerging Writers Festival, Express Media, um, all those sort of literary organisations based at the Wheeler Centre really got behind this program and it was also this impetus when I think over the last more than five years we've really seen within our literary context in Melbourne um, opening up, trying to open up around, you know, the whole concept of inclusivity and diversity and we're very, I mean, we're very aware within disability we can actually often have a default of hashtag disability so white um and you know i was privileged enough to work with maxine beniba clark um and kate larson we were at writers victoria probably about three to four years ago uh, now we had a uh, an event called the diverse women's writers day and that might seem like nothing now but back then it was kind of a, a big deal mm. and we had um you know um around 70 or more um, uh, female-identified non-binary writers in the room. And, um, you know, there's a lot more sort of happening now and we've still got a long way to go, but I suppose I was just trying to find a way to come up with a term that actually kind of showed a lot of the different work I've done over the last few years and the communities I've, I've worked I've worked mm-hmm. with, but this isn't, it's not a linear thing. It's more like a lot of us are just there really, <laughs> um, I don't know, putting our head down and trying to do the work. But you, but when I reflected on it, I actually have worked with a number of, uh, you know, a, a lot of writers, but also from a number of different communities mm-hmm. as well. I think that's, yeah, that's what I'm so interested about, particularly in with this event, because most of the panellists, I think, are also um, writers and activists and storytellers themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we gave a lot of thought to how to approach this panel. Um, we definitely wanted, I mean, it's disability-led and that that all the panellists, you know, would be uh, disabled writers uh, because... It, uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm hoping that this might be the start of more things to come in in this space um, around, you know, climate change and disability. But I think as a starting point, we just wanted to keep it very much focused around, um, yeah, connecting in that advocacy, advocacy activists with the storytelling concept. 
Um, I mean, I think I think just yeah, stepping back a little bit, like in July this year, you know, the United Nations Human Rights Council, you know, they did adopt a resolution on climate change and the rights of people with disability. And they were calling on governments to adopt a disability-inclusive approach mm. um, when taking action to address climate change. And I suppose that's, you know, it's one thing to have that, but, you know, when we look at what's happening, happening you know, in our country in terms of we pretty much, like I said before, our federal government, you know, isn't acknowledging that we have climate change and then, you know, there's a whole lot of ways that not just in the climate um, debate that people with disability uh, are being further marginalised by this government, particularly, say, for example, around the NDIS funding and then wanting to kind of <laughs> take that back, ironically, to uh, officially say, you know, to put towards drought relief. Mm. So um, I know some people might find that like, oh, well, how can writers and artists, you know, make... <laughs> even make impact when you've got this kind of um, very serious kind of situation happening on that big picture level. But I think that's something I really want us to explore in this panel too, is actually looking at, well, what is the role of writers and artists and filmmakers? And, um, you know, it's not... Maybe you don't make impact straight away, but maybe through doing a whole lot of small things, and that could lead to bigger things, certainly within the screen sector. Um, you know, if we were able to make something, you know, such as, uh, a, you know, a TV series or something that was around this subject matter, um, the potential for that audience would be really huge. And um, another thing why this panel came about is that I was... Green Australia's had an initiative. They just did the third one last week called Develop the Developer. And I was in the first um, round back in 2017. Um, and that was pretty much an intervention by Screen Australia to say, we're going to um, find a whole lot of people from different uh, marginalised communities um, to actually become story developers. So really at the front line when film and television and other digital sort of online web series projects are being developed, usually have like a developer, which mm -hmm. is partly a script editor, but more is like working with the key creative team to develop up the stories. And um, I mean, I was already partly working in that space, but going through that program just really uh, galvanised kind of how important it is to... Um, be opening things up and perhaps finding writers and storytellers that may not just be working in screen, but like reflective of our panel, you know, we have um, Annie Jackson, you know, who's a poet, and Carly Finlay, who, yeah. you know, is an advocate and author, but is also initiated and is the editor of Growing Up Disabled, which mm -hmm. is the new, um, will be a new anthology um, that both, CB Mako or Cubby and, and Jackson are a part of. And You've got such a great lineup. The panel oh, just thank you. is incredible. <laughs> Honestly, it sounds like an incredible event and um, and it's a free event as well, right? It is free and it's that there's still tickets available at the Wheeler Centre, but it's also live streamed, mm -hmm. live captioned and um, Auslan interpreted and that's on the live stream as well. 
Um, and that's also will be recorded and available post the event as well. Awesome. And how long does the event go on for and what time is it? And just a little bit more about how our listeners can register for a yeah. ticket. Um, well, if you go to the Wheeler Centre's um, website, um, that's where you can register. And it starts at 6.15 and goes for an hour to 7.15pm. Um, we also have... Uh, um, we have the moat having a bar upstairs. So as part of, um, because it's a partnership with the other film festival, we also mm-hmm. have um, drinks available um, kind of so there's sort of networking after the event as well. So that goes to about 8pm. Awesome. I mean, it sounds great. And I really urge all of our listeners to try and get try and get to that event, especially as it's free and you get to see this amazing panel um, and Fiona, of course, hosting the event. <laughs> Fiona, thank you. thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us about that today. And oh, best of luck. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Have a good day. Thanks. And that was Fiona Toomey, host of the free event on Wednesday at the Wheeler Centre, leading the charge, climate change, disability and storytelling. And yeah, those, that panel is a bunch of heavyweights, so get down there and be so much fun. I'm such a fan of Carly Finlay. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tune in to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. Tilda is one of only a handful of trans and gender diverse film festivals in the world and is returning to Footscray Community Arts Centre from Thursday the 28th of November to the following Sunday. Tilda showcases the works of TGD filmmakers and artists and films that have TGD content for TGD people, allies and the wider community. Check out the full program and get tickets at tildemelbourne.com. That's T-I-L-D-E melbourne.com, a 3CR supporter.
And that was Swerve Driver with Mary Winter. And up next, I'm speaking with Pilar Aguilera about the protests in Chile and her activist work here in Melbourne. Hi, Pilar, and welcome to Monday Breakfast. Hi, Monday Breakfast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. I hear you had a concert yesterday, so we appreciate the uh, early morning Monday rise. <laughs> no problem. And uh, how did it go yesterday? Look, it was fantastic. Um, amazing energy. I'm really bad at counting numbers, but I think we had probably at least a thousand people. Wow, a thousand. Come- Yes, if you get on social media and, um, yeah, look at some stuff of Concert for Chile, Federation Square, um, it was a massive crowd of not only Chileans but other people supporting and it was really an amazing energy. I think it's been really important for people to get uh, together, to hug each other in these troubled times and... Um, have a sense of community. Community and music is always a good thing. Yeah, and try and have some um, unity when it's all um, fractured. <laughs> and did you um, see Nano Stern? He made an appearance, I guess? He did. Um, Nano Stern, for those of you who don't know, is a Chilean singer who's been out in Australia on tour. And he um, got in touch because he's also an activist as well as an amazing performer. And, um, yeah, got in touch with us in the community and said look I'm free for a concert Um, and yeah we put this concert together in about eight days so it was quite amazing we got local artists and Nano was the big headline act he just played at Queenscliff Music Festival and he was amazing and he said he when he got there he did not expect that many people being so far from Chile and he was just saying how hard it's been to be away from Chile in such a turbulent time, especially when um, violence and the situation is so uncertain at the moment in Chile. So, yeah, his concert was amazing. Um, he got the crowd singing. I think the feedback was that they'd never had a crowd um, singing so loudly in Melbourne. So, um, <laughs> um, that's good amazing. to um, hear. I actually saw him at the Queenscliff Music Festival a couple hours earlier, um, but it was the end of the festival, so I think he was struggling to get the um, uh, hollaback response he wanted from the crowd. <laughs> but a beautiful and I think show. it's different when um, most of the crowd spoke Spanish. So he, yes. He went into Spanish and... Uh, we did a lot of the chants that they're doing on the streets of Chile. And I think um, many times it's been quite therapeutic for people and healing for people, especially Chileans who are here and so far away. Um, seeing what's happening in our country back home and feeling a sense of powerlessness or a sense of maybe I would like to be there, but I can't. So. These community gatherings are really important. And one of the other reasons we did this concert was also to get the word out in English about what's going on. We had um, some some politicians in Parliament sitting today, and one of them is going to be speaking out in Parliament about um, calling out the human rights violations perpetrated by the Chilean government on its people. So that was also um, an important part of yesterday is getting getting information out to the wider community because the media 
or not 3CR, of course, but the mainstream <laughs> media isn't really reporting what is going on. And a lot of people have said that to us. It's like, why am I not seeing this on the news? Why, why don't I know about what's going on? I mean, you know, we all know why, but yeah. it's important for us as community activists to have a platform of music and have artists who are willing to donate their time and be able to get that word out in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about that earlier on the show. It seems to be, um, it is in the media, but it's not proportionate to the magnitude of the event. Yeah, and I think um, one of the other things is that it's not just what's happening in Chile. I think Latin America doesn't really rate very highly in the mainstream news here in Australia. Um, it's very far away. Um, not much stuff is reported. You know, we hear more about what's happening in Europe and the US, but Latin America doesn't really get a mention. And so I'm not surprised by that. But this this has been sort of a little bit covered in the media. You know, like people loosely know, yes, something's happening in Chile. We don't really quite know what. But I think, you know, um, after it's the the... The uprising, the people on the streets has been happening now for a month. So I think in the first week it was being covered, but people get a bit of fatigue, you know, I don't know. Yeah, short attention spans sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah. do you um, have anything else planned? Um, look, we as a community have been putting together lots of different rallies. There is an event. Planned. I'm not organising it, but there is a community event that was announced yesterday um, about uh, a march to Parliament. I think that's happening tomorrow during the day. I'm not sure of the details. Um, sorry, a march to Parliament here in Melbourne? Or? Yes. Great. Um, I will um, try and post a link on and, the Monday Bracky show. Yes, and um, I'll try and find out the details for you. There was another thing that um, there are a group of people going to be driving up to Canberra as well to go to Parliament in Canberra. So not sure of the details, but yes, I will send you some details and I'm sure if you tune into 3CR, you will hear about it. Excellent. <laughs> and yeah, as you said, I'm sure it's um, really hard to be of support for people in Chile when you're not physically there. Is that what you try and focus on then, raising awareness um, in other areas? Yes, yeah, and I think um, for me personally, I've been an activist for a long time, so I actually remember, uh, you know, doing, going to rallies and denouncing human rights violations during the Pinochet dictatorship, which ended in 1990. And what's been really sad for me and for a lot of other activists who are of that sort of era has been that we're using exactly the same language to... We're using exactly the same language now that we did back then to denounce these human rights violations. And it's really sad. We had a meeting with the, we had a meeting with the Victorian Trade Hall Council um, last week um, and they passed a motion to be able to denounce these human rights violations and it felt like we were back in the 80s and history repeating itself um, is just really, really poignant and terrible. Um, especially, I guess, the difference now is that this is all happening under the guise of a supposed democratic government. 
So, yes, it is difficult, um, but I think our job here is mainly to raise awareness, to be able to get people in Parliament to call out this violence so that it does become something that's more known in the mainstream community. Yeah, absolutely. And it must be strange because um, some of the country, like yourself, have um, been alive um, for both eras and then there's a whole generation of people who weren't there um, for the Pinochet era. Um, do you notice a real yeah. difference between the two experiences? Or? Um, a little bit. I think I think what, what unites us now is this um, this fact that, you know, what's happening in Chile is so unjust and people... It, it's slightly different. We were actually talking about this last night after the concert, that it is a different experience. It's like, I guess... Um, in the 70s when the military took to the streets in Chile, people didn't know how terrible it was going to be. There was a really poignant story that someone told that um, their husband was arrested and taken to the National Stadium, which was used as a sort of torture detention centre back in the 70s, in 73, when the coup first happened in Chile. And the, the level of naivety because they hadn't experienced these levels of violence before yeah. was, you know, the wife going to the stadium and took her husband a change of clothes, you know, took in his pyjamas and, you know, they didn't know, they didn't know that it was going to be so brutal, whereas people who, who lived through that, who survived through that and through historic memory know what happened, they're ready for this violence now and it's, it's just as brutal. Um, you know, the, the statistics are an awful. Um, 24 deaths in one month. Um, State-sanctioned state violence. Um, over 240 people who've lost eyes. Um, I mean, you were talking about the Amnesty International report, I think, on your show. Yeah. Um, yeah, over 240 people who've lost eyes because the police are aiming for faces and... People are losing eyes, becoming permanently blind either in one eye or two eyes um, from the use of police using rubber bullets that aren't rubber because they're rubber encased in steel. Yeah. Another thing that came out yesterday was that the police are using um, different types of tear gas, some even laced with traces of arsenic. So the levels of chemical warfare, of detention of um, sexual violence as well, people, men and women being detained and being raped. Um, there's also been allegations of clandestine detention centres in Santiago. Um, and that hasn't stopped during this whole month. It's escalated. And, um, yeah, we feel like we're calling out on the same things. You know, we feel like we could... You know, we're using the same sort of cries and chants of end human rights violations in Chile when we thought we wouldn't have to do that again. Yeah, history repeating itself. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up, but thank you so much for taking the time, Pila. Thank you, Monday Breakfast, and love your show, and keep listening to 3CR, everybody. Oh, thanks, Pila. <laughs> And that was uh, Pilar Aguilera, um, a Melbourne-based Chilean activist. Uh, you can hear her on 3CR on Wednesday evenings at 6.30 on uh, Completa Bilaba.
And that was Fulton Street with Ain't That The Way. Now we're going to speak to the inaugural winner of the Helen Noonan Prize, which is a $5,000 award for creative women in the performing arts who have made an outstanding contribution to female-driven storytelling. Thank you for coming on the show, Fleur, and congratulations. What does it mean to you to win this prize? It's a pretty lovely thing to be recognised for, really. I guess there's a lot of us who are out there trying to make work that tells stories of women and tells stories with women, um, but it does. It means a lot from that perspective to sort of be to be acknowledged for for doing that and for uh, creating. I very much think of myself as an employment artist as well. I create workspaces for women as I as I write my plays. So that's a really special thing to be recognised. And then wanting some money is also <laughs> definitely. That's so true about employing people because yeah, you when. Writing the play must be such a lonely experience, but then seeing, seeing it on stage and seeing it come alive with all these people, that, that must be such a rewarding experience in itself. It's wonderful. And I'm, I'm very acutely aware, and this is the thing I guess I talk about a lot, that the position of a playwright is kind of simultaneously the most and least powerful person in the room. You're kind of, I'm often not actually in the room, but <laughs> what I write will dictate who ends up in there and what they spend their days and months and weeks thinking about and doing to each other and saying to each other. So that's a really a power you need to take pretty seriously when you're, when you're thinking about creating places for, for women um, uh, or for anyone to work in, really, that you take that seriously and acknowledge that that's, that's a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you won the prize for your play Whale, which also won the Max Afford Award. Could you tell us what the play's about and how you came to write it? Absolutely. So the play is about uh, climate change. Specifically, it's about land loss um, and Australia's responsibility to our island neighbours. Um, it, uh, it's an all-female team or, uh, and one gender non-conforming person. Um, and it, uh, it asks the audience all as you come in, they're given a number and told that's how many people you're here to represent and everyone's representing an island and to sacrifice one of those islands to stop climate change, essentially. So I, I did a lot of work thinking about about our responsibility to, uh, as Australians, about why we weren't hearing this message as Australians, and, and I kind of thought, well, maybe if I make Australians plead in the same way that our neighbours frequently have to plead, then maybe maybe it'll land a bit. Um, yeah, so that's. That's whale. <laughs> okay. So was it was it difficult to bring climate change to the stage in a dramatic way, or did it did it it's the dramatic quality of it sort of lend itself to the stage? Oh, it is difficult because it's it's so big that you kind of don't know where to start. That's why I focused very much on on land loss and on islands and and had a very specific narrative there. I think otherwise it's it's very easy to write the play where you just sit in the in the um, terror uh, and sit in sort of inactivity and that's not what I want to leave mm. my audience feeling. I want to I want to do something that by the end of the play hopefully makes them feel powerful and makes them and activates them as, as people we activate them in the audience. We, we give them power, we give them decision making power and I, and I hope that then that sort of carries with them into the wider space. I, I think as well it's a very female way of telling the story of climate change. It's the characters is very sort of self-deprecating and grand all at once 
and uh, yeah, it's nice to be acknowledged. But I guess climate change is a women's issue as well. Is you know, being a human on this earth at all is to be a human living in this in this time of climate crisis. So it's nice that that's acknowledged. That that's a really crucial thing to women these days as well. Definitely. So is is it important for you that your art speaks to the real issues the world is facing? Absolutely. I, you know, I chose a chose a really strange career. Um, <laughs> I've got to kind of justify my existence. I think. Um, yeah, it was just kind of a brutal way to to do it. But I, you know, I, I ask. This sounds like I sit around asking big existential questions all the time. But I do ask, what's the point of me? An awful lot. Um, and I think that's a good question for us to ask and to think about critically and not in a you know self-hating way but just like what what am I adding I, mm. I could you know I chose to be a playwright in this time of global confusion and indecision and I've got to, I've got to help um, I've got to find some good words for that and help make people feel things definitely um so so the Helen Noonan prize and, and prizes like the Stella prize for literature um, are really mm. trying to draw attention to the issue of underrepresentation. Uh, yeah. What what else needs to be done in the performing arts to see real diversity of voices? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> no, not at all. It's a, it's a great question. I mean, we are seeing a change and a shift. I think industries that haven't instituted this already need to be thinking about quotas. Helen Noonan was a soprano as well, and I've been doing a bit of work in opera lately um, writing librettos and just have been really struck by how it's a female-dominated industry and that there's a lot more women than men, but uh, instead of sort of making that a matriarchal industry, instead it becomes this kind of uh, females are a dime a dozen kind of thing, while the men are sort of these rarities and and you have women constantly performing their own deaths and their own sexual assault. I think it would be amazing to to see us demanding that less of of the women on our stages. I think it's a really tough burden to ask. Um, but at the same time, if you're going to ask women to or anyone to perform these big things, it's important to consider this as a workplace and to think about how you can support your your colleagues uh, tell these difficult stories that you're asking of them. I think that for too long we've assumed that people will portray their own victimhood and just deal with that, um, be that women, be that people of colour, uh, you go to any female actor and ask them how many times you've died on stage and uh, it'll be a lot. That's such a super interesting point. I never even thought about that, the, the per- per- mm. performativity of your own death. Um, yeah. On a different tact, so as well, as well as a playwright and a director, I understand you're also co-founder of Lonely Company. Could you tell us yeah. what that is? Yeah, so I've been doing that for a few years now. That's myself, Morgan Rose, and Bridget Mackey. So we're all playwrights um, and dramaturgs, which are the people who sort of... Uh, my favourite brief description is the midwife to the play. So we um, we each take on a playwright each year um, and mentor them and, and meet with them every month for dramaturgy sessions. And we also, uh, essentially, for the last few years, have been um, in studio through creative spaces and we have covered their studio rent as well so basically we're just sharing our studio and sometimes we've put on bigger events than that but the main thing for us is about creating a network of peer-to-peer support uh, trying to create sustainable careers for 
playwrights. It can be, you know, the name comes from that it can be a really lonely profession. Um, so it's lovely to get to journey with other artists in this way and, and make something, create something together and care for each other in that way. It must be so important that they have the support and space to um, write, especially when it is such a niche industry, I guess. Absolutely. And just to have someone to send dumb gifts to as well on Messenger, that's important. <laughs> that's also a big part of what we do here. But, uh, yeah, it's very important. Yeah. So what's next for you, and how's the prize going to help you? Um, what's next for me is uh, I, I'm making work, more works about climate at the moment. So I've just got back from um, 10 days in, in the Gondwana rainforest in Queensland and interviewing people about landscape and about activism and generation. So doing a lot of work trying to, again, hopefully tell stories that make people feel strong and powerful and like their voice can make a difference. Uh, and also that, let people know that, you know, this country's still worth fighting for when you go to these incredible places and see these amazing landscapes. You go, oh yeah, that's it's not all not all dead, it's not all gone, it's still absolutely worth us wholeheartedly <laughs> leaping into this fight. Um, so there's that. I'm very keen to do a little bit more opera as well, so working a bit more on that. I've <laughs> been working on an opera about uh, about miscarriage and stillbirth, so, uh, you know, what fun. Um, <laughs> but it's a, um, it's a story that's not told enough. It affects an awful lot of women, so uh, I just wanted to find a way to give a voice to that well, thanks thanks so much for and you said we talked about before um justifying your own existence i think i think you're mm -hmm. definitely doing that with this work um oh, thank th you. thanks for coming on the show <laughs> thanks so much for having me cheers so that was flua kilpatrick the inaugural winner of the helen noonan prize
And that was the Public Opinion Afro Orchestra with no passport. And that's the end of our show. So thank you for tuning in and thank you for all of our guests today. And stay tuned for Women on the Line. See you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.